You're listening to The Korea File. I'm Andre Goulet. The Korea File is a monthly podcast exploring Korean society, culture, and politics, and highlighting critical, independent voices you won't find anywhere else. On this episode, the Royal Asiatic Society Korea Branch is a non-profit organization which helps visitors to the country enhance their understanding of the arts, customs, history, and social trends of Korea through lectures, cultural excursions, and special publications. Stephen Shields is the vice president of the society. He's based in Seoul, and he joins me today from Las Vegas, Nevada. Hello, Stephen. Good morning, Andre. So the Royal Asiatic Society Korea branch, the RASKB, was officially, institutionally recognized by the London headquarters in 1900. This is one of, if not the oldest academic institution in Korea. Is, is that right? Well, as far as a, an institution that focused on Korean history, culture, and arts, yes. I, I call it a, uh, one of, probably the first Korean studies organization. Of course, Korea had academic institutions uh, back through the different dynasties, uh, particularly Sungyungwan University, which is the Confucian school in Seoul, uh, much older than the RIS by several hundred years. But as far as an organization that was focused on what we now call in the academic world Korean studies. I, I think the RASKB was the first ever. Well, according to the website, folks look for it at RASKB.com. The society offers both academic and lowbrow, quote, offerings for better understanding Korea with priorities placed on accurate insights and pleasurable means of learning. Tell us more about that. What does that look like? Well, we have lectures twice a month. Most of those are provided by either uh, students that are working on uh, graduate degrees. Some are offered by professors from institutions uh, who are uh, you know, teaching in their fields. So we have quite a mix. Um, a lecture just this week was uh, called Sex in the Kitchen and uh, focused on Korea's uh, food culture where for centuries men were never allowed to enter the kitchen and uh, spoil the taste of the food by doing so. The uh, anthropologist who gave that lecture has done a study of this and, and is tracing the, you know, how the trends have changed and how more and more men are cooking at home. So, you know, that's not necessarily a so-called highbrow uh, academic topic with lots of big words. That's interesting. So there's there's an accessibility aspect to a lot of the work that's done. So in, in the piece on the website uh, titled The RASKB, The First 100 Years, 1900 to 2000, Horace G. Underwood describes the time when the society launched, the, the late 1800s, as a kind of time of like what he describes as an exuberant expansionism in the Western world with a great curiosity about the new lands being discovered or opened to exploration and trade. And it was within that context that the Royal Asiatic Society began to organize in Korea. So what 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 was the Royal Asiatic Society? What is it? Is, is it kind of like an ad hoc collection of uh, academically interested groups all over the globe or, or what? Well, the, the Royal Asiatic Society had its first beginnings in the late 1700s in India with a, uh, a British colonial official who was interested in exploring history and culture and all of those sorts of things. 
uh, was organized in London officially uh, with the seal of approval from King George IV in the early 1830s. In Korea, by the uh, 1880s, we had a small community of uh, missionaries from Australia, Canada, the U.S. We had some diplomats from various Western countries, some from Japan as well. And somewhere in the late 1800s, several of these mostly gentlemen got together and uh, you know, were pursuing interests alongside their regular work and started getting together. They published a, a monthly periodical called, there was the Korea Review, just trying to you know, write about in English uh, and share their experiences, what they were learning, uh, what Korea was all about. By 1900, the, this collection of, of gentlemen decided that uh, they ought to seek approval from, from London to set up an official branch, and so they did. The approval was given, 1900, June 11th. Two years later, Emperor Kojong of Korea also gave his official seal of approval, and, and the organization was then officially uh, registered according to the Korean government laws that prevailed at the time. And well, and one one really interesting thing about the history of the society is how closely it parallels the history of Korea, especially in terms of upheaval, drama, drama. Uh, no sooner had it launched then, for reasons not clear, but maybe because of the political disturbances associated with the Russo-Japanese War and the annexation of Korea by Japan, there weren't any general meetings between 1902, just two years after the society launched, and 1911. So how did that initial annexation of Korea interrupt the society's activities? Um, I, I don't think it was related at all. The, the uh, organization simply met when somebody had a paper to present. And uh, so depending on who was the the uh, chairperson at the time and who was doing what, um, these guys were busy people. The missionaries were busy with church work. Diplomats were busy with their work. There, there may have been a few business people involved in the early years. I, I don't know, uh, you know all of those members. But it was a small group of people for the first Ten or so years. Yeah. So, so maybe. So, actually, it's interesting to hear that that you don't see that as uh, as the the annexation of having much to do with the interruption in activities. But I, I want to take a few minutes to explore the backgrounds of some of these historical figures who were, who were very important in founding the society and some of the society adjacent personalities that had an outsized impact on the expatriate community around the turn of that century. One of them actually had little interest in old Korean culture or traditions and he arrived in the country uh, thinking of himself I guess as a kind of agent of change convinced that Koreans needed above all to become Christian, receive a Western-style education, and adopt American-style democracy. Tell us, who was Henry Gerhard Appenzeller? Well, Appenzeller was one of the first Protestant missionaries in Korea, and uh, based on the understanding that many Christians have that they're supposed to go into all the world and make Christians of everybody, uh, that was the that was the flag under which a lot of those early missionaries went to Korea and uh, very quickly began setting up institutions that, you know, modeled after Western-style schools, hospitals. Well, Appenzeller was just one of those early figures uh, mm -hmm. who uh, 
know, took seriously what they believed was the mission of Christianity. What about uh, the sort of other, uh, another important figure who was actually really admired by Koreans, even in retrospect, some say, for his commitment to education, who was Homer Bezalel Hulbert? Well, Hul Hulbert, again, was another missionary. Mm -hmm. Probably uh, of that whole group that were founders of the Royal Asiatic Society Korea branch, Hulbert was was a top-notch scholar. Uh, he uh, pursued many avenues of interest relating to Koreans' history and language and culture and was a prolific writer, uh, wrote dozens of articles and books, uh, things like that. Some of, some of our best sources in the English language about not only Korea at the time he was living, but research that he did into the past are, are some of the foundational materials that scholars are still looking at today. Interesting. There was a Canadian who was responsible for some other early important academic work regarding Korea. Uh, tell us about James Scarth Gale and his Korean English Dictionary. It was one of the first, wasn't it? It, it was indeed, yes. Gale, uh, like Hulbert, was, was another top-notch scholar. And uh, Gale's work was broadly based. He's, he was into everything. I, I'm not quite sure how he did his missionary work because of all the stuff that he was writing and researching and putting together. His, his, his dictionary was a, a groundbreaking uh, tool, uh, primarily directed to the missionaries uh, so that they could uh, really you know, adapt the language and, and use that. Mm -hmm. uh, the the other thing that Gale did that is little known but really important, he did his own translation of the Bible into the Korean language, having served on the translation committee and then at odds with some of the other translators as to which approach should be taken, literal or, um, oh dear, I can't think of the technological term right now, but there's a literal translation, which is basically word for word. Then there's the translation that would get the meaning and communicate that. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was at, they were at odds with each other, so he just went ahead and did his own translation. Not literal, but the other way, right. so that it could adapt to the culture and be understood more clearly by people. That book mm -hmm. is extraordinarily rare. It was privately printed. But that, uh, in my estimation, of all the stuff that he did, the historical writing, the linguistic work, um, that translation of the Bible is just absolutely incredible. Uh, it's an incredible task mm -hmm. that he was able to achieve with, with great finesse. Very interesting. Does that mean that most Christian Koreans are engaging with a biblical word that came directly through this man? No, they, they're all engaging with the literal translation that the Presbyterian Translation Committee uh, promoted. Well, speaking of the Presbyterians, uh, there was another missionary, Horace, Dr. Horace N. Allen. He, yeah. he saved the life of Min Young-ik, the Queen's favorite nephew, when he'd been seriously injured during the Gepshin coup in 1884. Uh, tell us more about Allen. Allen went to Korea as a physician for the American legation. Um, he, he was an ordained minister. Uh, he was also a, a a degreed and licensed medical doctor, and became very uh, well known. The community was small. It wasn't hard for the royal family to know about these foreigners because there were so few. Uh, when uh, uh, when Prince Min was was 
uh, wounded, the uh, the the palace uh, medical doctors, based on uh, ancient uh, Oriental medical practices, were unable to make him better. And Queen Min uh, asked permission to let the American legation doctor come and, and examine her nephew. And he very quickly determined what was wrong and was able to take care of the problem. Allen then became appointed as court physician, and the Oriental medical doctors were kicked out of the palace. It was not really a great time <laughs> for the king was not very diplomatic about that. Mm-hmm. But Allen, Allen, you know, he he made such an impact. And uh, today, you know, he, he's one of the founders of modern Western style medicine in Korea that, that's practiced today. And um, you know, his his work just really laid a good foundation. Mm-hmm. A final group of figures I want to touch on is the Underwoods, uh, a, a group, a family who've had this ongoing relationship with Korea for generations. Horace Horton Underwood, who was in Korea as a young man and then left for his education, he returned to Korea in 1917. He was to play a leading role in denouncing the Japanese repression of the March 1st, 1919 movement. And he was the son of a previous Underwood, Dr. Underwood. Uh, Is that right? Horace Horton Underwood was the son of Reverend Horace G. Underwood, uh, and uh, Horace G. Underwood was not a medical doctor, but his wife, Lilius Underwood, was a medical doctor. So in a way of speaking, Horace Horton Underwood was the son of Dr. Underwood. He was also the son of Reverend Underwood. He had a doctor's degree in in, uh, theology and literary studies, but uh, 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 Reverend Underwood, the first of the Underwood family in Korea who founded Yonsei University. Mm-hmm. Uh, to my knowledge, I've never seen him in anything that I've read, ever seen him referred to anything other than Reverend Underwood. But mm-hmm. his wife, Lilius, was indeed Dr. Underwood, and she served as the physician to Queen Mean in the palace. So this is a family that really did have a tradition and a heritage with with, with, uh, having a relationship with the country. So how important was this de facto support for Korean independence? In the overview of the society's history that I was uh, quoting from before, uh, Horace G. Underwood suggests that American missionaries in Korea couldn't really ignore the brutality of the Japanese authorities' evidence in their suppression of the March 1st movement. No neutrality for brutality became a common slogan for those speaking out against the occupation. So how unusual was it for Western interests to be speaking out against Japanese empire at that time? That was a really difficult uh, time for everybody. Uh, The British sided with the Japanese officially, diplomatically. Uh, The Americans were kind of noncommittal, but they really weren't coming out in support of Korean independence. The missionaries were caught in the middle. Um, They had all these members of the church who were, you know, trying to live their lives as Christians. Uh, They saw people around them constantly being uh, brutalized, uh, but if the missionaries, being foreigners, were to speak out too strongly, they could be arrested, kicked out of the country, the churches, who knows what would happen. And so they were walking a really, what should they call, almost a tightrope uh, to try and maintain the focus of their ministry, mission, uh, you know, making people Christians and doing their educational institutions and, and, and hospitals. 
but you know, I, I just can't imagine that they were sitting by and happily supporting what was going on with the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know from other uh, stories that I've read uh, uh, that uh, they really struggled with what to do mm-hmm. and, and how to maintain that balance. Uh, there's one missionary who was running a school up in Pyongyang on, in March of 1919 who basically ran out in front of the Japanese military who were about ready to massacre a group of students that had raised the old-style Korean flag onto the flagpole of the school. And he kept that flag. It was finally returned to Korea in 1974 by his sons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, so there's some really, there's some stories of real courage from some of the early missionaries. The diplomats mm-hmm. had to follow the orders of their governments. You know, they, they couldn't right. really speak independently, but the missionaries... Well, did what they could. Mm-hmm. And, when we're, and when we're speaking of Appenzeller, of Hulbert, of James Scarthgale, and of the Underwoods, like, I mean, it's, 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 it really helps us to imagine the context in which the RASKB came into being and, and was revived. And one important fact that's become more clear with time is that missionaries who usually came to Korea from their home countries, they were the ones learning the language and kind of having a first contact experience uh, of life in Asia in that Korean cultural context. And this would give them firsthand experience with a genuine kind of life in the country. Uh, in some cases, it might have also created a kind of sense of solidarity that other foreign residents of the country wouldn't have experienced. So how close was the relationship between missionaries and ordinary Koreans at that time? Well, it was very close because the missionaries, as far as they knew, they were going to live and die in Korea. So that was their home now. And so they even even the the wives of those early missionaries picked up the language. Their children were born in Korea. The Underwood family, uh, Horace G. Underwood, the first one, went to Korea in 1885. Um, his son sons were born there. Grandsons were born there. Great grandsons were born there and lived there. Many of them uh, all lived there uh, throughout their lives. Now the fourth generation. Uh, there's another Horace Underwood, number four, has retired and moved to the United States, but you know, okay. he's in his 70s. But his brother Peter Underwood still lives in Seoul and uh, you know, was born and raised there, and it's his home. And go out to the Foreigner Cemetery in Yanghua Jin in the uh, western part of Seoul, and uh, you see multiple generations of Underwoods and, and other prominent missionary families. Uh, multiple generations uh, of their mm-hmm. tombs. Mm-hmm. Well, now, and diplomats, like you mentioned before, they were the ones who had to uphold the uh, perspectives and policies of the government. And these were the other primary kind of expat living in Korea in the early 20th century. So according to Underwood, almost without exception, they would have spent a long years in Japan before they were assigned to Korea. And they might have mastered Japanese language and culture and they would have been familiar with some of the most refined and talented figures in Meiji era Japan. But knowing this, it seems likely that a lot of these diplomatic figures living in Korea would have had maybe a pretty paternalistic attitude towards the country. Do you think that's fair to say? Uh, I don't know. Perhaps it's hard, you know, it's so hard not having been there to, you know, what would I have done? You know, how mm-hmm. would I have approached that? It's it's difficult. Um, but but the the context is generally true. Many of the diplomats in that era had long-term uh, assignments 
unlike at least in the United States context today, an ambassador serves generally for about three years is all. And uh, it's, it's very difficult when you're in the diplomatic service in the United States to pick up more than, uh, you know, a, a language here or there as you go about your assignments. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though they have the State Department has a fine language school now, and, and many do become conversant. Uh, in those days, they lived a long time, and distances were far, and so they stayed a lot longer. And you're right. I think that many of the diplomats who went to Korea came over from Japan, especially after the annexation, when there was no longer an embassy-level diplomat in in Korea, but just a consulate. And that consulate would have been uh, a branch of the embassies in Tokyo. In every country's case, who you know, the British, the Canadian. Well, let's see, I'm not sure there was a Canadian embassy at that time. I don't think there was. No, there was not. Uh, the Italians, the Germans, the French, uh, the Americans. Uh, sure. There were, you know, Belgians. Uh, well, they all all became uh, simply consulates. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it was the person who had been the ambassador level representative who now became a consul general in Korea, but they okay. stayed. Uh, but you know, the, that connection was big. Underwood makes the suggestion that there was something that united both groups, the missionaries and the diplomatic communities. And this was a conviction that they both had that Korea needed to be rescued from itself and remade in a modern form. Japan was seen from both sides as working towards this kind of change. But Underwood suggests these attitudes would have shifted in light of the events that followed the annexation, which forced Western powers and the religious interests in Korea, the outside religious interests, to realize that a lot of the Japanese viewed missionaries as enemy agents of foreign powers, and they saw Korean Christians as as a threat. So what can you tell us about that kind of shift in perspective and and how it changed the view of of, uh, maybe the American government and other foreign powers? Up until March 1st, 1919, which was the Independence Movement's Declaration Day, there was a a lot more neutrality. After that day, there was a lot of press in Seoul for the next year or so that it was all the fault of the Christian missionaries who were trying to undermine all of this modernization, and there was a power struggle between the government authorities and the missionaries. Imagined power struggle, I should say. In fact, the missionaries really were unaware of what was going on with the March 1st movement to a large degree. They they may have consulted with some, you know, half of the signers of that declaration on, uh, in 1919 were Christians. So I can't imagine that some of the missionaries didn't know that there was uh, you know, some of their parishioners were doing this. And there had always been this resistance afoot, you know, for several years anyway. But none of them really came out and promoted the independence movement, but they didn't denounce it either. Uh, again, there's that, that tightrope that they're trying to walk. Um, you know, Korea did need to be upgraded. Uh, there were lots of, you know, just in the area of public works. Uh, Japan had earlier, much earlier, adopted some Western style approaches uh, in the uh, early Meiji era, uh, which was, uh, well, what, from the 1860s or so. Korea was still being controlled by government officials who 
promoted Confucianism and the old ways, and there was a great resistance against change and, and outside influence. Uh, so transitioning here to the activities of the society again, they were brought to a close when the Pacific War broke out in December of 1941. Foreign residents of the country were expelled by the Japanese, and Korean members of the society were forced to disassociate themselves from any foreign organizations. And then the society was again briefly active uh, during the period after the Pacific War ended and the beginning of the Korean Civil War. It, it published two volumes of the Transactions Journal. This is the society's official journal. The second one was produced out of Hong Kong. Then uh, during the protracted hostilities of the Korean War, when much of Seoul was obliterated, the society lost practically all of its library. But since the end of that war, stability has brought a kind of consistency to the society that it didn't really experience in the first half of the century. Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. We, uh, we kind of reshaped ourselves and uh, became more of a, a, an organization that uh, wanted to help introduce Korea to the growing expat community that was in uh, primarily Seoul in the 1950s and 60s, uh, earlier on, you had to be elected as a member. You had to have some scholarly background, uh, some status of education to become a member of the RAS. In the 1960s, uh, that was opened up to anybody uh, because we saw ourselves then as a society, as an organization that could help explain Korea to this ever growing number of business people and military people who were coming in, uh, mm -hmm. military dependents, especially the U.S. military dependent families family, and yeah. contractors who were not, you know, military people, but, you know, were providing support services. So there was this community there. There was nothing available to help them learn about Korea. Mm -hmm. uh, there were no language schools at the time that could be accessed by the common person. There were no academic institutions that could be accessed by the common person. There were no periodicals. And so the RAS filled a real important role uh, as Korea emerged from the, uh, uh, the, the Japanese occupation and the Korean War and started to uh, develop as a modern society. And uh, the, the RAS uh, moved in and, and uh, at our peak, we had over 2,000 members. Yeah, and in 1999, when, when Underwood published his study of the society, there were around 1,300 members, including uh, 500 overseas, 70 lifetime members, and the rest just being regular, normal members. The peak, the peak was 2,000, and what are, the, what are the membership levels today? Well, unfortunately, we've declined to about 350. Mm -hmm. um, we, we still have a number of overseas members. Uh, we still have a number of life members. Um, but in the in the last 20 years, the uh, expat community in Korea has shifted dramatically. Uh, the U.S. military presence is significantly reduced, uh, especially with all the support uh, contractors and other people that were there in other roles. Uh, you know, and then the base is shifting further south. But, but the U.S. military doesn't have anywhere near the number of support staff in civil service that it used to have. Um, the, uh, most of the English-speaking expats who are in Korea these days are uh, English teachers. Mm -hmm. And um, they're not uh, 
simply not available at the times we have our activities to be to come. Uh, and in many cases, those English teachers are making salaries that would make it difficult for them to pay the, the membership fees, perhaps. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have as many uh, expat uh, uh, multinational business people in Seoul like we used to have. The, those roles are being more and more filled by Korean talent. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, Koreans that, uh, that immigrated as children or were born in the U.S. and other places that that grew up bilingual, they're coming and filling important roles in those kinds of businesses. And because they're uh, Korean people themselves, we, we don't have much appeal to Koreans. We do have a good membership. There's there's probably a third of our members are Koreans. But, uh, uh, you know, we do an English medium, so any Koreans who do come would need to be able to understand English. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to, you know, we're we're looking at ways to kind of reshape what we're doing now mm-hmm. to fit the 21st century. And so to that end, uh, you know, one of the things that has allowed the society to continue for more than a century is that it has provided access to thousands of people to a society and culture that was sometimes difficult to penetrate. And, and one of the reasons that there has been success for, for decades is the scholarship of the academic papers published in the journal Transaction. But aside from that kind of scholarship, what what else do you do? There, I mean, there's there's lectures happening on an almost biweekly basis, isn't that right? Right, that's right. That That's our primary activity. We try and do some excursions on the weekends. Many of those are walking tours in parts of Seoul that uh, people wouldn't typically uh, walk to. Um, sometimes there's walking tours of areas that people pass through a lot, but they don't realize down the side street there's something of interest. And we have a lot of local talent, Korean and and expat both, who are well skilled in being able to conduct some of those tours and have spent some time uh, working on learning those areas. One of our members does a walk walking tour of a college district that was where the Korean uh, metal music first started back about 40 years ago, maybe less than that, maybe 30. But he's he's fascinated with heavy metal, and he's done lots of uh, work talking with people, musicians, and clubs and things and it's a fascinating walking tour and Stephen, just 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 a question before before we uh kind of begin to wrap up what, what are your own origins uh with korea when did you first arrive well, i first arrived in korea in december of 1975 i was a missionary and was there for a couple of years i went back and worked for a couple of years uh, uh never uh, it was all volunteer for missionary work then. But and when did you uh, first get involved with the society? 1976. So been a while. So, but you know, I've uh, I've Korea has been part of my life since then. Um, I I later entered the uh, uh, ministry, became an ordained minister, spent several years pastoring a Korean church in the 90s and 2000s had other duties with the denomination that took me to other parts of Asia for many years. Uh, and now that I've retired from full-time church service, I've, I've decided to put my roots down in Korea and spend some more time there mm-hmm. and uh, enjoy, you know, the RAS is, for all those years has been a, a great outlet for me to get to know other people in the community and 
meeting people from all all walks of life, diplomats and business people and students and everything in between. And a couple lectures that listeners will want to know about is uh, Tuesday, April 23rd at 7.30 p.m., Robert Neff will be talking about an American gold miner in 19th century Korea. And in mid-May, May 14th at 7.30 uh, there will be, from Shanghai through the Korean War, a personal journey from An Yong-ok, Ph.D. Stephen Shields is the vice president of the Royal Asiatic Society Korea branch. Stephen, thanks for speaking with me today. You bet. It's been a pleasure, Andre. You've been listening to episode 83 of The Korea File. Follow the Royal Asiatic Society Korea branch on Twitter at R-A-S-K-B. I'm on there, too, at Andre Margulay. This podcast is hosted and produced on a 100% volunteer basis and receives no institutional or commercial funding. The Korea File is supported by listeners like you. Just a couple of dollars a month goes a long way towards keeping it on the air. If you can afford to support this show and to help subsidize it for listeners who can't, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile to become a monthly patron. Thanks a lot. Music on this episode is courtesy of Creative Commons. Subscribe to The Korea File on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back in mid-May with the first in a series of interviews with guest lecturers from the Royal Asiatic Society Korea branch. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>